You're listening to the All In Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Blake, giving you a new perspective on the dental industry. Are you ready to go all in? Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Welcome to the All In Podcast, the podcast that brings you a new perspective on the dental industry. I am Shane McElroy, and I'm joined by one of the founders of DIA, the CEO of Implant Compare, and an all-around great guy, Blake McClellan. How are you, buddy? He lies. Hey, now. I really wanted to call you a dick, but I was trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that was really nice. I must have slipped you a 20 and forgot about it. I just stole it straight out your wallet, brother. Um, speaking of DIA, the, that's coming up really soon. I'm stoked, man. I can't wait. I had such a good time last year, dude. Yeah, it was great. It's a it's a nightmare and it's a great joy. It's like the end of year for me. You know, we we all the stress comes to one point. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, it's 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 just a few weeks away. I go to uh, I got to go to Orange County for a day, and then head out uh, to Greater New York. We're going to live stream that, and then I go straight to DIA and the chaos. So um, it's going to be awesome, man. I'm excited, and uh, you know, tonight we've got a. One of the speakers there, uh, it's going to be there on the podcast. So I'm excited to uh, to have him on. Yeah, that'll be awesome, dude. I actually saw, uh, was it David Bebe? Is that how I say that? Uh, Bebe. Bebe. I saw it uh, on LinkedIn. He had, they're going to be doing a workshop as well. Yeah. So he asked if he could get a room uh, the day before because he's coming out early. And so he's going to do like kind of a pop-up workshop on branding. So he's worked with like Marriott, Disney, American Express. I mean, he's really run some incredible strategies and uh, he won an Emmy for a commercial he did. And I mean, the guy's amazing. So anyways, he's going to come out and do like a pop-up workshop the day before for like, I think we're going to have 40 people. I need to snag a spot then. You know, last episode we're talking about branding and all that stuff. So we'll actually, instead of hearing it from a couple hacks, I'll actually hear it from a professional which will be all knows nothing about dentistry he's actually made a post today it was like the only time i like uh going to the dentist is for this conference here in dia or whatever you know he's like so i mean it'll be funny to hear his perspective on everything it's a, it's probably a good thing coming from the outside on some of the stuff too not getting the same old you know circle of influence that we always get It'd be a nice uh, fresh perspective outside the industry sure 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 well, speaking of DIA, so why don't you introduce our guest? Because I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been following Todd uh, for a while on Instagram. And then, you know, uh, I think we have a mutual friend, Nader Salib. And, uh, you know, he's just great, great content. And, uh, you know, he's all over the place speaking. He just, I mean, he's got his own book out there now. I mean, the guy's uh, really doing some amazing stuff. And I think he's kind of an all in type person. So, and he's speaking at DIA. So, uh, Todd Schoenbaum, he is actually at the UCLA School of Dentistry. He is head of their CE, our director of continuing ed, I believe. And then he also is an associate clinical professor there. And I mean, it's his his book, uh, Implants in the Aesthetic Zone. I mean, it's really some top-notch material. And he's been really going around on, I think, on a world tour lately, uh, you know, lecturing on it and teaching on that. So without any more, I introduce Todd Schoenbaum. Welcome. Hi, Shannon Blake. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for the very kind, overly kind introduction. It's an honor to be here with you. Oh, got in the background too. Love it. I, what kind of dogs you got? I, I warned you, we got a couple of mutts back there. So once they hear me. Oh, that's talk, okay. I got a couple of crazy kids. I just happen to be in a hotel room right now and 
we love dogs over here. What kind of dogs you got? Uh, they are uh, street orphans that we got from the pound. So best kind. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell everybody, give your, give everybody kind of the thirty thousand foot view of yourself, a little bit about your background, and and kind of how you got to where you are today. Uh, let's see here. I went to, I did my training at UCLA and then, um, I was fully intending to go into private practice and I was actually in the process of, uh, buying a practice a couple years out of school. And I was, uh, teaching at the school about one day a week. And, uh, as it turned out, like, you know, when you wake up in the morning, how you feel about your day, I think is kind of a really important indicator about maybe what we should be doing with our lives. And, uh, the days I woke up where I was going to UCLA were, were far and above my favorite days to wake up. And, um, so long story short, uh, a couple years in, I, uh, was able to secure a, a full-time appointment at the university. And, uh, I, I was the assistant director of Ed McLaren's aesthetic program for about four years. And about six years ago, I became director of our continuing education program. I, uh, spend, my, my current week is I spend about, I spend about one day a week uh, with the dental students for implant restorations. I spend a day a week in practice with Peter Moy uh, in his private practice uh, near UCLA. And then I spend a day a week as a student in the medical school. And then I spend uh, the rest of my time trying to wrangle all the cats and, and run our CE program. Yeah, I think it was looking at your profile. You do how many events a year, CE events? Um, <clears throat> Well, uh, UCLA, we run about 50 or 60 courses. I, I myself personally don't attend most of those, but, um, but my department is responsible for the oversight of them. And I probably attend about uh, maybe 10 conferences a year, something like that, about once a month on nice. average. Yeah. And what is it like organizing so many different CE events you know, through your department. I mean, I know it's oh, for man. Shane and I, we, I mean, just a few years, a nightmare. Yeah. How, how honest do you want me to be? <laughs> Keep it real, man. <laughs> we want to hear it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a big challenge. There's the, there's the fiscal challenges there, but, but probably more significantly is the political challenges of running a C department inside of a big public university, you know? So there's a lot of you know, it's not just who's qualified and who's competent and who draws a big crowd. It's also, you know, who pulls a big draft at the university and so on and so forth. So you got to manage some egos there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As I'm sure you guys are, are well aware of, um, in running the, uh, the DIA as well, right. Sponsors, uh, speakers, balance of, of all that, right. You know, dealing with hotels and contracts and room blocks. It's Yeah it's a big ordeal. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like I was told to say, it's like a blessing and a curse. Cause we started it just on a, on, you know, a feeling, right. We just wanted this to happen because what everybody with the dental Instagram, it, it's just really neat. Right. We just want to put them all in one room and have a good party together, I guess. And now after the first year, after it went so well, you know, then I was like, okay, there's going to be a second one. Right. And then a third one. Right. I'm like, Oh man, you know, we didn't really calculate this to be a business model. It was just like, Hey, let's do, a, do an event together, you know? And so now we're here and yeah, we're trying who, to, and who's dealing with the hotel and who's, uh, you know, dealing with the sponsors and all that stuff. Oh, oh yes. Let's get into that. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. We have hired an organization to handle it for DIA 3.0. Oh, smart. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean that it, that makes it easy. I mean, it's, it's tough too when everybody's busy in their own private practice. You know, it's me and four clinicians. So, you know, you got four people who are in private practice all the time, and then you got family, and and they're all speakers as well. And so it's just like it's a nightmare. So, like, let me ask you this: I think you were doing some uh, lectures in Asia recently, right? Uh, yeah, I go to Japan about twice a year and China, maybe every other year, something like that. And, um, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, well, not Hong Kong right now, but yeah, Hong Kong sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. When things are good. <laughs> I mean, like for, for when you're doing that, what is, I mean, what's that like when you're going over to a completely different culture as a speaker? So it's one thing to speak at a local study club, but what's it like going over where there's, a language barrier in a sense. And I mean, I know everybody's there understands English, but you're still dealing with not the comprehension you would deal with in the U S of English. Right. So, uh, like I went when I lectured in the middle East, it was a big challenge. You had to change the way you presented and stuff a little bit and slow it down. Where'd you go in the middle East? Uh, I went to Bahrain, uh, right outside of, uh, Saudi Arabia. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, actually, in at least in um, uh, ch- most of China and even Japan, the English comprehension is not there. So actually, you're all run through a translator, and uh, if it's if it's run simultaneous as a speaker, it, it's it feels okay, but it but how you come across depends entirely on how good the translator is. If it's consecutive, where you sort of say like a line or two and then pause for the translator to, to speak. Um, it's, it's really just pragmatically very difficult to manage that because, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to be enthusiastic and interesting and then you stop for 10 seconds and then enthusiastic and interesting and stop for 10 seconds. And, and that sort of, you know, repetitive break is, is very difficult to, to manage sometimes. Yeah, that would really mess with your flow, your cadence and everything and your energy. But it, and to be perfectly honest, it's just awkward. Like try try and be interesting for 10 seconds and then stop for 10 seconds, you know? It's it's <laughs> it's weird. No, I can, I, I would imagine. I mean, it, it definitely was for me and I mean, we, there was a a pretty high retention of English in in Bahrain, but it, it was still uh you, you just you have to change the way you present, and and you're also not getting the humor. Like if you do some humor in your no, speech, you can't do humor. Lecture, you're not getting that. No, nope. yeah, you're not going to get that. No. Nope. So it, it's it's you have to take that out. And when those lectures, when you're trying the humor, like for those who don't know and they they're just learning, right? They on at, you know at on the stage when they put that humor in their slide and it doesn't bite, it really kills your mindset. <laughs> yeah. like you're just for sure. Oh it's man, totally you freeze up. Yeah. Well, not only that. Like I mean, even if it even if it translates, right? Like you tell a joke and you stand there with a silly grin on your face for 10 seconds while the translator tries to convey it and hopefully they can convey it well. And then the joke goes through, right? It's just, (laughs) yeah. So, yeah. And, but, you know, perhaps, perhaps more, you know, professionally, the, the challenge with lecturing abroad is, is the highly variable structure of the profession, so, like in Japan, for instance, there's virtually no specialties. There's, as I understand it, there's basically orthodontics, which there's very few of, and there's uh, oral and maxillofacial surgeons, but they largely function more as like orthopedic surgeons inside of hospitals. And the entire profession of dentistry is mostly people that are 
self-specialized for lack of a better term. So if you want to be into preventative dentistry or implantology or whatever, that's what you sort of self-specialize in. I feel that's kind of the way it's starting to change over here in the States too. You're seeing more implantologists or focused areas by general dentists. Yeah, certainly. Now, let me ask you this. Were you over there just lecturing in general or with the with UCLA or were you talking about your book? Uh, so for Japan, um, it's actually been a little bit of both typically. So uh, we actually run some courses for UCLA in Japan a couple times a year. And then uh, while I'm there on UCLA business, typically some other uh, study club or entity will arrange for me to have a lecture while I'm there. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I, I saw you signing some some books. So I mean, <laughs> that's got to be cool, right? When there when you have that international shock factor, you know, coming over as an American lecturer, you, you definitely are treated much differently. So it's kind of a cool feeling, right? It is, but okay. So let's be candid. This probably isn't going to the Japanese. Um, the Japanese, in particular, uh, are very excited and like interested in people when they first come. And then sort of once you've come and they've gotten the photo with you and or the signature of the book, it sort of dissolves pretty quickly from there. Really? It's like you give a lecture and then they want to, you take your picture and then they still want to talk your ear off, right? For however long. For that time. But then, but then maybe when you come back the next time, they've already sort of collected that baseball card, so to speak. They used you, abused you and got rid of you. Yeah, I... I, um, I, you know, every culture certainly has its own quirks and eccentricities, but, but that's one of the things I've noticed about there is that you sort of, when you first meet people, you may sort of feel like sort of an elevated status, but then the second or third time, it's just, you know, less so. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. So you're, you're really heavily on the education side. What is your feeling on the education side of dentistry? Uh, is there any kind of irritant for you or do you think there's a time for disruption in it you know and and what are some of the pain points that you think are in education side because you see all of it and as you know we've discussed like organizing events nightmare um but like i think the money side of things and the cost that it takes to put on events and get speakers compared to what people are paying now is 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 terrible i mean is there anything that you're seeing on your end ah that that's kind of a big challenging question um so we're not talking about universities, though. So you guys probably have a much better read on this than I do. So I'm sort of insulated inside of the university walls. But uh, what I see is maybe like a rumbling that the longstanding academies may not have the draw or influence that they once did, or that they were perhaps too insular for too long and too many people felt like, they should have been included and were not included, and they've sort of blown it off. Yeah, I mean, that's really what's happening. The, the big groups, the the big conferences, things like that in general have kind of died because, well, they stuck doing the same thing for too long. That's why you see a DIA taking off. That's why you see some of these other conferences taking off that are taking a different path on it. So, yeah, I mean, I noticed that. And I don't know why that is 100% other than they're not changing the way they're doing things. Blake, what do you think? You know, I would say a lot of it is the internal team behind it. Um, the way that it's just handed off really short, that there's no long-term 
vision in a sense because this is the transitioning of powers. So I think it's hard to manage any organization when there's that much, uh, with that high turnover in a sense, right? So once you get a vision and you get a team of leadership there, right, to design a vision for the organization, well, then the new president comes in and maybe they have a different thought process or something, you know? So I think it, there's just a little bit of issue of continuity. But again, I think that the whole entire dental industry has changed in the way that they view things, the way that they learn, and now the way that we connect. And there's a community that's developed online. I mean, it started with Dentaltown, really, I mean, with the forums, and it's now segued into the social media stuff. And so um, they've got to find a way to tap into that and also kind of bring more value for the time away uh, from family and stuff. Yeah. And then the allocation of money from the corporate side is different too. We know they're not paying as high of honorariums. They're shifting their money from, instead of doing the big conferences a lot of times to, all right, let's do an event for our guys, right? So that's all changing too. And and all the companies are kind of moving the same direction. So it'll be interesting to see how it continues to morph and change. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a whole different ballgame on the education side now. Now, Todd, do you teach any private courses of your own or are you just mostly with the school uh, and then just when you get lecture gigs with other organizations and stuff? Uh, to, to be honest, I, I don't really like lecturing inside of UCLA because I feel like as director of the CE program that there's a bit of a conflict of interest. So I'm, I'm part of a few programs that we run with re- related to implants there, but for the most part, I try to sort of wall off my my teaching and my um, director responsibilities. And I, I think that I'm probably most passionate about lecturing to relatively relatively small groups of people that are interested in what it is, whatever it is that I'm talking about. So I, I'm not particularly fond of big regional meetings, to be perfectly honest, because I find that the audience is mostly there for a couple CE credits, and if we read off the code to get their CE credits at the beginning, that half the room would leave. And so, as an educator, it's not a particularly interactive and rewarding experience, and I'd rather have a small study club or a, a collective of people that are passionate about improving whatever it is that we may or may not be talking about. What are some of the topics you're currently lecturing on? I, I primarily focus on the restoration of implants, um, partially dentalist patients for lack of a better term in the aesthetic zone. So, uh, and then also like controversies and scientific developments related to implants and uh, rescue treatment. So that is like treatment that's been started elsewhere and didn't go well and then shows up in our office. So that's been something that's been unfortunately more and more that what we've been doing in practice and it's it's very challenging and i i just hope to share some of the knowledge that we've gained or techniques that we've developed in that part you know and, and that's the premise of the book right implants in the aesthetic zone when did you release that you know we actually start i gave a lecture at the american dental association about four or five years ago and then springer uh, Nature, who publishes the journal Nature, approached me about about doing the publication and wanted to do sort of a a collective approach, which really spoke to me. And so we gathered a team from, I think it's about ten or eleven countries and ten or eleven universities. And um, I, I think we were able to develop a pretty concise 
clinical guide based on that. And uh, yeah, and then and that's also turned into sort of more or less what what I lecture on. You know, we've got other buddies who've written books on different topics as well, but what goes into that? How much time does that take? You know, I have no clue on that. <laughs> well, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, we got we. I mean, you guys are doing your own, you know, the podcasts and and all sorts of other things too. But you know, we need strong clinicians also sharing things through various written media. Can you take us through um, what it takes to publish a book? Exactly. Okay. Because I'm interested in that because I I am completely clueless in that arena. Uh, do you like making about half a minimum wage, sending thousands of emails? That that's about the uh, the the gist of of writing a book that has so many authors. Uh, so you don't just write it overnight and make millions. Yeah, well, that's yeah. how it works. No, the millions can't. It took a few weeks. <laughs> but um, but no, seriously. Uh, I I really tried to assemble like a really strong team of folks to contribute to the text, and so that honestly that took about six months, probably just to assemble the teams, and then getting everybody sort of on point with, with topics and getting chapters lined up and all that. So it, it was about a four year process. If, if one were to write a book by themselves, you could probably bang it out in about a year. Uh, if you, if you had a strong editorial team and you had most of the content and the photographs and diagrams already sorted. So you really have to love education in order to do this kind of stuff. I mean, you're, you're I mean, it's not for, this big pile of money. It's not because it's easy. No, it's not at all. You know, what drives you in the education space? What really made you fall in love with it? Was it UCLA and, and that atmosphere? And then you just kind of segued into to ex- or expanded it? Well, originally I was planning to be in full-time private practice. My dad was in full-time private practice for 45 years. He just sold his practice about six months ago. And so that was always sort of my mindset. And uh, I really... F- fell in love with just the teaching aspect of it. I, I find professional interaction, discussing topics at a high clinical and scientific level with colleagues, uh, I, I find it fulfilling. And so the text is sort of a culmination of that for me up to this point. Now, what you say text, you know, I, I assume, you know, publishing articles and studies as well. I mean, do you, how many studies do you have out there? Well, to be perfectly honest, what I do is is probably not uh, up until this point, although it's sort of something I'm shifting into, is not probably properly referred to as scientific studies. It's more like techniques and case series. So ju- just sort of sharing some protocols and some ideas about how to make things easier, faster, better. So, so that's mostly what I'm up to. Al- although, as I mentioned, uh, I'm actually about two thirds of the way through a master's program in the medical school at UCLA. And I'm shifting my focus more towards like in vitro and in vivo clinical science. Those demonstrations, you don't really see an ROI on that for your time, right? That's truly a passion project, right? No, the ROI is emotional or intellectual. You've been published a bunch. I see like in PubMed, PubMed charges for that stuff. How do you get paid for any of that or? For papers? Yeah, no. for any of the papers that they actually make money. You know, with. funny story. Uh, I was probably two years out of school, and I thought, I'm going to write a paper on stuff that I like to use. And so, like, I was going to write about, I don't know, some, like, suction devices and a handful of other things. You know, just kind of trinkets and, and things that might make stuff clinically more interesting. And I, and I wrote the companies, and I was like, I'm going to write a paper on this. 
you know, basically like, how much do you want to pay me? <laughs> and everyone was, you know, either I got ghosted or people were like, no, that's not really how it goes. And uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, no, nobody, I mean, not, not for me anyway, nobody's ever paid me for anything for writing. So like a PubMed, for instance, they can charge people for your work and you don't get anything back? Uh, well, not PubMed, but um, let's say like JPD. But the Journal of Prosthetic Dentistry, the average person doesn't have access to the full text article. I spend a, b- a bunch of hours, a bunch of expertise, and a bunch of time, write a paper, submit it to JPD, go through the revision editorial process and the revisions, and they publish it, and you can't get it unless you pay for it. And I got paid nothing. Wow. Like, we got to get into this game, bro. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> this sounds like a good, like, I mean, you would think that there would be some kind of open source community around that, right? You know, and especially in this era, day and age where there's open source tech communities and stuff, if, if people are willing to submit this for free and volunteer this information for peer review, I mean, you know, uh, I, I understand that there's a fixed cost, but I mean, even WikiLeaks is a nonprofit that just, Wikipedia, that just lets all the information out there, right? So, I don't understand that. And it's for the betterment of science too. So why is it so difficult and why yeah, is this allowed? This is, this is a much bigger problem in medicine than it is in dentistry, as you can imagine. You know, I mean, there's lives at stake. And uh, if your university doesn't subscribe to a particular journal that gets you access to that thing, then you may not be able to develop that particular technology. Which wow. is kind of easy that this is allowed to go on that way. Um, and I guess there's a lot of politics behind it. And of course, the dollars, especially on the medical side, are much higher than anything in debt. Oh, yeah. Med- medicine's about uh, both impact factors and research investments are about 10 to 20 times what they are in dentistry. That's crazy, man. But I just, I'm blown away by this. And, and I like essentially Blake and I kind of come on the sales side. So we're guns for hire, right? We like Blake doesn't step out of bed for at least $10 million. <laughs> like it's just to me, like we get the all in part, like doing stuff like this. We don't make money off this. So we understand that portion of it, but that amount of work and for another entity to be able to cash in on that, it seems odd to me um, that there's nothing, how many times your articles read or people sign up for it that you yeah. can get any back for that. It's, it's pretty wild. Well, it in part it feeds on the the nature of academics, right? So so most of the peer reviewed journals thrive on academic submissions, unfortunately, right? Because what we really need too is the clinical side submissions. And you guys may not remember, but there was a journal called PPAD, Practical Procedures and Aesthetic Dentistry, that was kind of a nice bridge between the sort of clinical, rigorous clinical application of uh, high-level dentistry and sort of a peer-reviewed nature, and it folded after not too long, unfortunately. Because, you know, advertisers want to fund things that people read and that they can submit advertorials to. That basically, uh, and I've had this offer sent to me a number of times where some manufacturer wants to pay me to put my name on a thing that they write and, and maybe I sub- send some photos to. And and unfortunately for our profession and for our patients, that's that's a really inappropriate way to handle things because I'm not saying any of that. And I have some photos maybe, but but it's not very informative or educational for our colleagues and for our patients. And it and it's highly biased. But I was gonna ask that, like how do you feel when you see all these people defend science that they learned from a pamphlet that they got from a company. Uh, Because I'm sure you see that quite often, right? I mean, honestly, I think that 
you know, the biggest drivers of education in our, in our industry are the, the companies because they donate the most, they buy the stage time, uh, you know, and things like that. Like even our sponsors were thrown back by DIA when they couldn't buy a speaker on the main podium. Like, no, we don't do that. Yeah. There's, there's sort of end arounds to that as I'm sure you're familiar, but, um, and, and that will be evolving and changing. Apparently the ADA SERP committee who provides CE credits is taking that ability away from manufacturers, uh, which is good for us as a university, but you know, may or may not be good for clinicians. But I am highly concerned about the prospects of the education of our per- profession being based upon people being paid by manufacturers. Yeah, and this becomes a very interesting game. All right, you want to do a meeting, you want to do a CE course, that's fine, where you've got the the manufacturer footing most of the bill there, so your tuition's low. The problem is if you say, all right, we want this completely independent, which would be good because then you re- remove the bias, but now your tuition is, you know, astronomical yeah. higher. So there's the give and take and and you know, I see both sides of it. What's like where's the solution for that? I mean, there's got to be something, you know, I'm not sure we'll come up with it on this podcast. That would be amazing. But there's got to be a solution. Like there's no implant company that's going to pay for studies that would indicate that maybe an implant could fail in this situation or it's not the best implant. You see all these success rates of 98%. Let's just be really honest. In a real clinical application, that's just not the scenario, right? So how do we get the real results without the money from those companies? Well, you know, Shane, that that's, You've really nailed the the problem. You know, here's here's the problem with dentistry, unfortunately, is that when new, let's say, let's talk about new products. So let's say you come up with a new membrane uh, as a manufacturer and you want to bring it to market. You really don't want to pay for phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. It will cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you may not get the results you're looking for. Correct. Correct. What you really want to do is just bring it to market. I mean, you've already done a significant amount of R&D in-house and you've got to recoup. You've got to get your ROI on that on that portion. So what you really just need to do is bring it to market. So what you do is you go to the FDA and you say, we want to file a 510, which basically says our new fancy membrane is no different than everybody else's membrane. That, that's what a 510 is. And is this, that's actually, you know, as long as you know the paperwork and you have a predicate device that you can follow, it's pretty easy. You're just saying, and that's where all the clone implants came from, right? That right. They were just following these predicate designs that were the done by whatever big company. Right. Yeah. And that's why there's we have 300 different implant companies out there right now. Yeah, that, quite literally. There's about 300 U.S. FDA cleared implants in America right now. And it's, the irony for us as the clinician is the companies come to market saying, or they go to the FDA saying this is exactly the same as everybody else's. And then as soon as they get the 510, then they come to us as clinicians and they say, this thing is, you know, crazy different than everybody else's and it's way better. And it's up to you and I, unfortunately, and our patients really, unfortunately, to beta test all the, all the variances. Yeah. Because yeah, again, they didn't have the, the, the loophole in the system, which I think it was on, um, John Oliver, he did a, a special on this on HBO and was talking about like 98% of the devices are F, get a 510K. They follow that process. And that's probably it's medicine. it's so easy. Oh, yeah. That was all medical, right? So it's just it, – it's happening all over the industries where it's just – it's easier to do that pathway of just – and I think you can get approved within like 30 to 60 days sometimes or something. It's, it's between 30 and 90 days, I think. Yeah, it's real. It's relatively short. So a hell of a lot easier than running phase one and phase two. Oh, yeah. And, and like you said – 
uh, cheaper. So then, you know, how are, how are they able to compete with that? And, and like you said, they take these studies that are generalized and they tailor and polish it this way or whatever. And then that becomes the literature for their customers. That's their basis, their scientific basis. I, I really enjoy science. And to me, and I, I primarily care about the health and well-being of our patients. That is my first and foremost focus. My secondary focus is the, well, I don't know how to say it, but the, the well-being of our colleagues, so to speak. So whether that's prosperity or predictability or whatever it may be. And what I find inherently frustrating is that, unfortunately, a lot of these things that run through 510s get dropped through the marketing team into your and our laps as clinicians saying, here's the thing, it's great, go use it and go tell everyone how great it is. And then they want to pay you as DIA organizers to put somebody on the podium to tell everyone how great it is. And then it turns out that five years down the road, it's not so great and a bunch of graphs have failed or and or you know whatever the potential consequences are. Or, or it's just fine, as it may be. But the, the reality is that the beta testing is being done in real time on real people in our practices, on our patients, and I'm in academics, but you guys are in practice and it's being done on your dimes as well. So should you decide to incorporate some new product or device into your practice full bore, and it turns out that five years down the line, it's an abysmal failure, as has happened multiple times in the past, you will likely be part of a class action lawsuit against the manufacturer to try and recoup your losses. No, I completely agree. I'm a big full arch nerd. We talk about it all the time, but that's happening with like what materials are we using for the final prosthesis? That's right. Oh, it's huge in 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 full arch in full arch prosthetics. What material do you use? You know, we have very little data on what's viable in that regard, and and you're doing fifty to one hundred thousand dollar treatments on people. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, and we're telling people, oh yeah, implants will last thirty plus years, and uh, but this should last you. We don't know. And what do you tell the patient? Because you don't know. You're just, you're regurgitating whatever information the manufacturer told you. So like that interests me a lot. You know, you're seeing the crystal ultra now looks like great. It could be great down the road, but we don't really know. They could start exploding in people's mouths. Sorry, crystal ultra. I don't really believe that. (laughs) Uh, But like you get the point, like we got this new implant out. What if it starts exploding in people's mouths after two years? Yeah, quite literally. It's pretty wild. And and dentistry is like that. We do that every single day. And and then then that's really... Uh, a loophole in the FDA. So how does that get disrupted, right? How do you get the FDA to care enough to, to make the pathways uh, have a little bit more resistance? Yeah. It, it, to be to be perfectly honest, it's not going to happen. There, there's not going to be a significant changes uh, at the FDA level. Uh, you know, most really intense research in terms of clinical viability is, is paid for by the NIH. And... What you and I do in dentistry is not a priority for the NIH. And, and I get that. I mean, there's kids dying of cancer, you know, obscure cancers and, and people with, you know, pancreatic problems and, and diabetes and all sorts of things. And if you only have a certain bucket of money, is a millimeter of bone loss around a dental implant really at the top of your priority list? Not at all. Yeah. No, and that makes sense. I mean, we're even seeing that from the anesthesia side. Um, there was a big gray area with the IV sedation and the dentistry side, and it kind of got out of hand. And uh, some programs were created that weren't, you know, under strict guidelines and stuff. And where a lot of a lot of the programs are with the university, right? When you look at uh, Augusta or UAB, and they were in that atmosphere, it's like a mini residency versus some of these like weekend warrior courses. And you're talking about doing IV sedation, uh, you know, that's yeah, no people's joke. lives are at risk. 
Right, right. And it took oral surgery really kind of fighting it at a state level. And they've only made some headway in that aspect to just get more restrictions on it. But, you know, it's crazy. There's just so many loopholes in dentistry because it is the black sheep of medical. And but at the same time, it's people's lives and wallets at stake, especially when you think about this full arch stuff. I I think that, you know, Shane and I talk about this all the time with the epidemic of full arches failing in the next five to 10 years because of a lot of people thinking that they could do all on four when they didn't have any real, you know, experience doing sure. that. And now it's, there's not a lot of people placing zygomas. So, you know, how are we going to fix these severely atrophied maxillary cases? Yeah, I, I actually have a prediction, you know, and I, I want your thoughts on this, Todd. It's, you know, we've seen what's happened with full arch. We've got some massive failures, right? And we're starting to get a little bit better at that, we think. So now those cases on these revision cases, now we're getting it, jumping into zygoma implants. And then I see eyeballs flying out. I see massive failures there because not that is skilled work. And I already see people, and I don't want to name names that are already jumping into that. And I'm looking at the case being like, you could have avoided that probably with the sinus lifter where we talked to Hunter Dawson about that. How do you feel about those cases? You know, zygomatic implants, that market is growing tremendously, partly because the companies are pushing it, partly because it's necessary. Where do you kind of lie? Where's your opinion lie on that? Honestly, Shane, I, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on it. I, I, it except to say that, you know, zygomas step up the skill and risk factor and that I, I would propose that it's a top-tier treatment, meaning that it's performed by top-tier clinicians. And, it, you know, as I say that, I, I feel a little odd. But what, what I mean is, you know, it's end-of-the-line treatment. This is, there's, there's nothing else left for these people. And so I think that people that incorporate zygomas into the practice should be perfectly competent at or as competent as possible at providing an end-of-the-line treatment. Well, and that's the danger of the guided zygoma surgery, I think. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, If you know what you're doing, it can help you with your efficiency. That's great. But if you're relying on some lab to plan it for you and you're basing it on loose, you know, as we know, communication between lab or uh, surgical planning and and clinician, it's terrible. Yeah, Blake, I mean, Um, as as you know, I mean, you you see a a CT scan and when you get in there and get everything flapped open, the bone, depending on on what they put the threshold at for the CBCT, the bone may or may not actually be where you thought it was. Right, right. And when you're dealing with, with, you know, blowing out someone's, (laughs) eyeball like you said you know this is this is no joke and it's no game and so i feel like that gives a false confidence there with the with the guided stuff to or it will it could be again it could be a dangerous tool that'll give that false confidence the the only thing i could say the only thing i will i I have no personal experience with psychomas I'll, i'll say that we actually don't do any at moy's office uh at least not that i've seen and um i would say they should be very carefully it should be a, a resource very carefully utilized there should no. be like a station training protocol for it i mean this is an area where we're getting real like a week dangerous. like a weekend program right Shane? yeah well you know you take a weekend program with a model and then you're ready to go slang implant yeah, yeah. same thing same thing absolutely well <laughs> the, the the how it's so ambiguous with the implants and and everything and and, and sinus lists and all the stuff that you're able to do in anesthesia it's very ambiguous. And look, I know, I'll be honest, I, I grew up kind of through the dental industry with the GPR people and, and Oral Max as well. And, and I have a lot of respect for both programs. I think they're great. But I do think like there should be a, more of a standards out there because it's just, I mean, look, it is the wild, wild west. And 
So I think that, that it depends on really authenticity and also, you know, that it's not being taught on an agenda. I mean, I've sat through some lectures of some big name people that I just got bored halfway through because it was such a commercial. I was like, look, this is just totally, this, this is an agenda for whatever corporate customer or, you know, supporter you've got. Yeah, that's yeah, point. It should be more certification or, or required training to be even able to do like, let's say implants. But zero chance that happens, by the way, because... Yeah. Uh, ADA is not going to support it because you got general dentists who want to place implants, and that's fine because we know a lot of great general dentists who are amazing at it, but they've done the proper training. And just be honest, I, I work for an implant company. There's zero chance that the implant companies are going to let that happen either because they would lose so much money because it would be a lot less implants sold. Yeah, I think that's what's nice about social media, though. You're now seeing clinician-first education in and in with a more of an amplified voice because it's easy to get buried in a journal right with your uh, your publication or just you know another needle in the haystack whereas with social media now you can really amplify your reach and 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 your voice and and it's hey i'm just teaching this cuz i want to teach it no agenda no sponsor no other thing and now the brands are going well we want to partner with these people so it, i think it it's it's taking that shift a little bit i think that the mindset's shifting in that way because again it, it, there's so many people that are just teaching on their just because they love to teach like you taught to that point, but the the problem with that is there's no qualification there either. You could, I mean, we see, like, we've talked about some of the guys who, you know, took a couple courses, been placing implants about a year or two, and then get out there and teach. They're yeah. really charismatic, really yeah. likable, you know, but they haven't even seen their own failures right. yet. And it, I'm not judging that. Like, I love the enthusiasm, but inherently there's an issue there. Completely agree. You, you know, as, as a profession, so whether it's, it's academics or clinicians or industry or education. Collectively, we need to reinforce the ideals of ensuring that our patients are well cared for and that the treatment we provide, perhaps sometimes at a, at a slight financial loss to ourselves, perhaps a, the patient would be better served in other hands, or perhaps the education for a certain discipline or a certain topic would be better taught in other hands. And there's always the danger of people wanting to, you know, you know, in private practice, you have to sort of, you have to sort of adopt this idea that you can handle anything. And it's a dangerous and undisciplined position to be in. And the same thing goes true for education as well. You know, that we, we need to hold our educators accountable for providing high quality disciplined, care, carefully, as, as best as we can have scientifically backed information to that, to that topic. No, I completely agree. I, I wish we could have an answer resolution or, or way to fix all this. All, all I see right now is all three of us have targets on our backs now for the FDA, <laughs> the ADA, the journals. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the FDA is all on it because they would love for us to take care of their problems with their five tens and their phase ones. Uh, you know, collectively addressing that. And industry would love for us to beta test everything and figure out what works and what doesn't. And that's unfortunate for us and our pa our practices and our patients. Man, I feel like we just opened up a can of worms and I always like resolving stuff, but there's no way to really do it. There's no good answer here. No, I think that it, it's, a, it's more about, again, the disruption and it takes people, you know, leveraging media outlets like, you know, podcasts, Instagram, whatever it is to, to share the story and then leave it to the community to decide. And I think at some point, yeah, there are some, some people can fake it till they make it for a while, but overall, 
usually they show their colors at a certain point with the amount of transparency that's behind social media and stuff that a lot of them get exposed. Yeah, and, and, most, and mostly, mostly, talks. mostly, not always. Yes, unfortunately. not always, but no, no, no. There's definitely some that see through for sure. And I, I can think of a handful right now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, man, I appreciate you being on the podcast. This this is awesome. I think it was a really refreshing conversation because everybody thinks that when you speak, it's all glorious. You're flying first class, you're eating the best meals and you know, you sleep perfect. You you adjust to the time change easy and and you make a bunch of money and it's all selling off into the sunset. A couple clarification points. One, I always fly coach. Two, I've got a five point plan for avoiding jet lag and I will share that at my lecture at the DIA. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, seriously. Like I always fly coach too. Blake is the one that gets to sit in first class. Now being short does help me there because I never, you know, stress about leg room. I'm now, always gonna be good. You you want to make the air the airlines rich, do you fly do you fly business class all you want? Yeah, well when the company's paying for it, right? Or, or they could pay you. <laughs> we, I, we've got two weeks till dia so this will probably uh be released right before then or right during then but uh we're excited to catch up man have a good time you guys, uh, thank you for having me both on the podcast and at dia i'm really honored you know wait to come come see you in person after your lecture be a big you know a big fan take my selfie and then completely ignore you after the fact <laughs> japanese style exactly well again thanks todd for joining us i actually learned some really cool stuff about that I had no clue on. And uh, I'm, I really, truly am excited to see you lecture at DIA. So see you in a couple of weeks. And uh, guys, thanks for joining us on the All In Podcast. Thanks for listening to the All In Podcast. See you next time.